Welcome back to Innovation Big and Small. Hi there, Jim. Hi, Squirrel. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay, and I'm going to find out about something that you're going to tell us about that I don't know anything about. So you you better you better clue us in. What what are we talking about this week? Well, I uh, I uh, moderated a panel on the future of work, and uh, it's an area I'm I'm quite interested in. And the reason is that I think technologies like AI and mobile computing and distributed work and social networks can really create different futures for people who are doing work. And I'm talking now about sort of frontline employees. And, you know, I could see the future going in two different directions. I could see it going toward one that focuses more on the agent and or the rep or the person doing the work and is trying to provide tools to enable and share information with and empower those people. Or, which seems more likely to me, given what I know about how, how companies invest, one that focuses on efficiency and is concerned with de-skilling and automating what can be automated and uh, monitoring and control. And uh, so this panel was with a few people on, who have thought about this a bit. And one was uh, from Case Western, Professor uh, Jagdeep Singh, another from uh, UC Santa Barbara named Paul Leonardi, and then a woman who works at a startup called ASAPP or ASAP, and they actually are doing it. They're using AI to uh, empower call service reps. And so they're, the, the tools are designed more from the perspective of what does the agent need to do to provide a good experience with the customer? Uh, and so that's, I mean, I think that's the future, but it certainly runs completely counter to sort of the economic calculus that drives technology development. Because the natural thing to do is to say, how can we get fewer call center representatives? How can we make it more routine what they do? So is this was this mainly about call centers and sort of um, digitally enabled work um, at a low level? Or was this also about, I don't know, professors, since it's your professors talking? It was more about frontline workers, so the, which are most of the workers in the world, but it's not uh, restricted to that. And, and it's really the question from my perspective is, uh, you know, what do you value when you're creating automation and what do you measure? And so um, what, what people value inside large companies is just what will increase flow through, reduce the number of times a person has to touch, reduce average hold times with someone on the line, all the cost-related metrics. And uh, what they're not concerned with is whether they're creating a mind-numbing work environment and how that might be affecting both productivity and, uh, and customer satisfaction. And, and quality of the work itself. The quality of the work itself is most important. And, if, and there have been studies that show that engagement uh, significantly improves both productivity and quality. Uh, and disengagement works against that, but we don't design technology as if that's true. And and if you if you ever went into, say, your uh, consultant selling automation, if you go in and you sell, we we've got this workflow. We're going to cut this, cut this, automate that, uh, displace this. People say ah, and the return on investment is fifty two percent. Great. And uh, But if you go in and say, no, we're going to empower the reps 
and uh, we believe that will drive, for data-based reasons, drive uh, engagement and customer satisfaction and ultimately productivity. I think most people will say, you know, I'm due back on planet Earth. And I think somehow uh, the whole, the, the discussion has to shift. It has to start valuing different things and measuring different things. Makes sense. I remember in my um, financial technology days, I was uh, selling to a hedge fund and the hedge fund had millions or billions under management. And uh, it had a team in India who were using our software. And they were doing all the using, and they were supplying reports to the folks back at home office. And we said, hey, you know, we've noticed that actually our system is really slow for them in India. Here's some technological things we can do so that they'll be more efficient in India. And, and we tried to do a return on investment. We yeah. said, we can make these people this much more efficient. We can get this much more value from each activity that they do. And interestingly, they weren't, they, they, they were not sold on that. So when you, you said that that sold well, it was very interesting in this case, because they said, we actually don't care whether they're more efficient. They're really cheap. And if they have to <laughs> sip some more coffee while they do it, it doesn't matter to us. What we want is fancier reports. Can we have fancier reports? So that's a case where actually the automation wasn't as valuable as doing something that, that did not make the, their lives any better. So it has the same effect on the work that they were doing. In other words, we were boring them to tears because they were sat there pushing a button and then waiting for the next 30 seconds and then another button and so on. But uh, automation wasn't interesting. So it, it can play both ways, right? Yeah. And then yeah. The, the other thing that this made me think of is a really interesting trend, which I've been noticing and thinking about for a while from a completely different world, which is the world of chess. So you might have noticed or might not have noticed, and listeners might or might not know, uh, computers can now beat humans at chess very reliably, including the world champion. They can, they're just you know, massively, massively better. But there's a very interesting um, entity who can uh, beat computers at chess. And that entity is a human plus a computer. And uh, they, the chess players have given this a name. It's a centaur, you know, the half human, half horse. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know why they picked that. Maybe because they're knights in chess and they look like horses. I'm not sure. But uh, the, the point is that if you take uh, a human plus a computer, the human will have very creative ideas and be engaged and have, have notions the computer won't. And the computer will do incredible amounts of very, very boring work to create um, options that the human can then choose from. And they, they've played games that, that show that the, the centaur does much better. And I see that over and over again in the higher knowledge work areas. But I suspect it would work just the same in a call center. I just don't know much about that world. I, I think it would work in many places. And that, that very, the very way you defined it is the human is at the center and the technology is supporting the work of the human, in that case, playing a chess game. I have uh, you know, been in and around automation in large companies for most of my career. And oftentimes it really starts with this abstracted view of a process, uh, whether it's a process for fulfilling an order or installing a telephone line or whatever. And there's a normative view. There's an assumption about the way that work should happen. And we automate against that. And sometimes that means fragmenting the work, automating little pieces of it. Some of the human, even without uh, any context, has to try to put the pieces together. And it just it just doesn't work very well. But I find it very hard. To, people will acknowledge it. But then when it comes to doing the design of technology, that's not the way they think about things. 
So that's, it's actually one of my passions to try to get people to think differently. I'll include a short uh, piece I wrote called an automation manifesto in the show notes uh, that talks about some of the ways you can do this. Um, but it's, uh, it's an interesting area. And I think startups and large companies that think more not about the about technology as the enabler of uh, routinizing, downskilling, systematizing, rationalizing work, but as tools, uh, real power tools for uh, for people, they'll be more successful. And I can give I can give one example of a company that I've just recently been looking at and working with just a little bit. Um, I probably shouldn't mention their name, but it'd be pretty easy to figure out one of several that they are. Uh, they're a thing called an expert network. So if you're uh, a big consultancy or or somebody you're advising on mergers and acquisitions or something, you'll you'll get this expert network to go and find you some experts who know all about whatever it is. So if you're thinking of buying McDonald's, you might go and interview some Burger King ex Burger King executives and understand the fast food market, that kind of thing. And the great thing about what they're doing, and I, I don't think this particular one is much different than the others, but, but I think it's a little more advanced. They enable people to do some of the matching. So it could be that you get just an automated match, just like in the computer, in the, the Centaur chess game, you might, the computer might just say, look, checkmate in four moves, play this. And then you just do it. Then it is very routine. But also you can get a list of options and say, actually, I want to go down this one. I want to go find out more about whether this expert's good and you know, can I can I get more information? And the computer will do all the fetching and all the thinking about it and finding people who are like that and so on. And then eventually say, ah, this is the right Burger King executive for you. But the human plus the computer is doing the work. It's not that the uh, computer is just completely turning away and doing everything and the, the person just pushes buttons. There, there is thinking and activity from the person who is helping to, to find the match. And I've, I see that over and over again in lots of different environments um, uh, with the startups and the, the mid-sized companies that I work with. When you can get the humans thinking and pushing, and not just pushing the buttons, but, but engaging with what the computer is uh, providing them, you get um, exponentially more value. Absolutely. And I mean, many are just straight-jacketed. I've, I've had... I'm sure you have too. I've had co phone conversations. I can remember one when we had gotten slammed by a telephone company and you're trying to get through and you're making phone call after phone call and nothing's happened. And you call up and you say, you know, this is Jim Eichner. This is the 14th time I've called. I am really upset about this. And they say, what's your phone number? And you feel like, what are you, schizophrenic? I mean, <laughs> they can't say, I'm sorry to hear that you're, and then you and say- And they're not allowed to. Right, they they would be punished if they didn't do it. That's yeah. not there. It's not the poor person's fault. It's the fact that the person has a script and it says do this first. And if you don't do that, you get dinged or fired or something else. And that is using the computer to to enforce a rigidity that is unhelpful. And unhelpful. you might as well be talking to the yeah. Uh, might as well be talking to the machine yourself at that point. And at some point, yeah, I mean, the the person is actually the one who can mediate a positive experience. They can empathize. They can. Uh, you know, use judgment. They can make uh, decisions that might resolve that aren't right on the checklist. So anyway, that's a that's a very interesting topic. I think it's a an opportunity for smaller companies that I think are not so stuck in a uh, you know a, a assumptions Taylorist assumptions about work, and it's an opportunity for large companies to do better for their customers, better for their employees, better for their bottom line. That's my view.
I can certainly see that. I'll throw in one idea just so we don't forget it for the future, which is that uh, there's a wonderful book uh, recently out called Meltdown, and it's based on an earlier one called Normal Accidents. And it's all about how in certain circumstances, accidents are expected and problems and things going wrong are expected. One of the ways they can be expected and normal is if a system is tightly coupled. So if you have a very simple example, that is um, a dam. So if you get a hole in a dam, it's going to make a bigger and bigger hole and eventually the dam will collapse and cause a disaster. Um, An example of a loosely coupled system is any human system. So you take a university or a big organization or a, a church or anything, and the humans are loosely coupled to each other. So if you have one human who starts doing kind of nutty things, or if you have a, a piece of information that comes to one human, it's very hard for that, to, like the hole in the dam, to become bigger and bigger and, and sort of explode. You can get that kind of behavior in human crowds, but it's much more likely uh, in, a, in a well-structured institution that, that it will kind of get dampened down, that it won't um, expand and get bigger and, and cause more and more problems for you because the humans will say, you know, I don't really think that's quite true. I think, you know, actually, we should go and check that out. We should not do that thing. We should we should take a little time over it. So they're slower to react, but they are less um, error prone. And that's precisely what you're getting. Uh, you're getting a loosely coupled system when you have a human in the loop, uh, maybe with a computer helper, but one who can say, actually, Mr. Rochner, I, I, I know that my computer says that you live on Mars, but I really don't think that's very likely. So, you know, our telephone bills to you that say, you know, you've been phoning Mars every every day for, you know, millions of pounds. I don't think that's right. So we, we should go figure that out. Whereas the computer will just say, great, you've been phoning Mars. Here's your, here's your bill. You know, pay a billion pounds. And, and right. you can't get to anything. And, and yet and there, are, useful. there are companies that, you know, worship uh, and sometimes very effectively at, you know, complete flow through. So Amazon does it very well. But Famously, of they course. Have a, but they have a back end that if it doesn't first, they get it right. And if they don't get it right, you can fall over to someone who has the t- empowered to help you. And, uh, and some of the fastest growing uh, digital companies do that well. But I still think that the, the resilience of the human system is something to be uh, honored. Absolutely. Makes perfect sense. All right. So things in the show notes uh, that we've referred to, uh, including uh, uh, Jim's article and um, uh, a link to the panel discussion, if we can find it. Uh, And uh, of course, we're very happy to hear from listeners who are uh, resilient humans or uh, computers, (laughs) if there are any computers listening to us, or uh, centaurs, if you're a human computer mix. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think about this? Is this the future of work for you? You can get in touch with us uh, on email, Twitter, other things. Have a look in the show notes uh, to to get in touch with us. And of course, we're trying to be here every week. We don't make it every time. I'm often tired, but you know what? We'll be here. And if you hit the subscribe button, you can hear us again on Innovation Big and Small. Thanks, Jim. Thank you.